Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I am Robert M. Price, the Bible geek. To me, the word geek suggests an obsessed hobbyist, and that would be true in my case. On the one hand, I'm utterly fascinated with the Bible. On the other, I do not revere the Bible as divinely inspired and authoritative. I used to, but perhaps ironically, it was avid study of the Bible that eventually convinced me it was not the Word of God, and the loss of religious faith in the Bible made it more uh, interesting and more understandable. I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there's nothing more pious than understanding the text. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, let's say we try to understand it together. Alrighty, uh, let's see, got a couple of long involved ones today. And uh, I'm just scrolling down to, yeah, David Mersch uh, asks this. Uh, taking into account that the Romans did their best to obliterate Jewish culture in 70 CE and that Josephus, as a Roman sycophant, probably used uh, damnatio memoriae memori uh, with regards to Jesus in his writings, I still believe that a historical Jesus can be recovered from the writings of the times. For example, the Jesus Ben Ananias account in Josephus is actually about the gospel Jesus uh, as an old man. Ananias, Ananus, and Annas are all derivations of the same name. Uh, Jesus Ben Ananias translates to Jesus, descendant of Ananias. Uh, if this Ananias is the high priest of the Gospels, then Joseph Caiaphas was his son-in-law and Jesus was his grandson. Do we have any record that Caiaphas had a son named Jesus? Apparently so, the Miriam ossuary. Miriam, daughter of Jesus, son of Caiaphas. This ossuary has been proved to be authentic and not a forgery. Depending upon the translation, either Jesus or both Jesus and Caiaphas were priests uh, as etched into the uh, ossuary. Now, you're talking about the James ossuary? 
I'm, I'm not sure if Caiaphas is mentioned in that or not, but uh, that one, to my satisfaction, has been exposed as a fraud. But I, you may be talking about a different one that I'm ignorant about. Okay, back to the question. In 1959, an ossuary was found bearing the inscription, Simon Builder, Bane in Hebrew, of the temple. The Greek tecton is the equivalent of the Hebrew bana. Uh, uh, to be considered a builder of the temple, one would have to have been a priest. Josephus records that there were hundreds of specially trained priests who built the temple. So the Gospels refer to both Jesus and his father Joseph as tectons or possibly priests. In Josephus' account, Jesus ben Ananias begins his preaching in the year 62 CE, the year of James's death. According to Josephus, Jesus hides his identity until 66 CE, um, the beginning of the revolt. Why? Possibly because until the beginning of the revolt, he was still wanted by the Romans for escaping his crucifixion somehow. After the revolt began, his identity no longer mattered. Um, Jesus ben Ananias preaches the same ideas that the gospel Jesus preached. Josephus calls Jesus ben Ananias essentially an unsophisticated hick from the sticks, or as he is portrayed in the Gospels, a poor itinerant preacher from Galilee. Unfortunately, Josephus does not give us an age for Jesus ben Ananias, which would have been a great help in confirming the connection between Jesus ben Ananias and the Gospel Jesus. But we know that Josephus had a great hatred for Jesus ben Ananias since he recounts the flogging Jesus ben Ananias received. The problem with his account of the event is that it is just wishful thinking on Josephus's part. Jewish law would have restricted a flogging to the 39 lashes prescribed. A flogging an old man might have survived. The Gospels are political propaganda, and as such, they are less interested in writing history than they are in using history to send a message. As a result, the idea of harmonizing discrepancies between the various Gospels is unnecessary. They were never intended to harmonize. They used historical events, often as allegorical accounts, to convey their intended purpose to foment revolution. Apparently, Derek Lambert has a podcast that often focuses on historical-slash-mythical Jesus matters that you have been a guest on. Do you have any contact for Derek that you feel comfortable sharing? I would like to contact him. Uh, Dave, you, you just need to um, uh, Google MythVision, uh, and uh, that'll, uh, that ought to do the trick. I think, uh, let me know if it doesn't, but I, I think that'll, you'll find the contact information there. Um, I'll, I, of course, haven't asked him, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was very interested in this. Actually, it's sort of ingenious, but the similarities between Jesus ben Ananias and the 
the passion narrative of Jesus strike me as more likely to be borrowing from Josephus by the gospel writers. Uh, that uh, as Ted Whedon has shown in great detail, it looks kind of like that all four evangelists knew this, either the story of what happened or actually Josephus's account of it and adapted it. Uh, so uh, there is a link, but I see it going the other way. Uh, the The one problem I have with your proposal is that it uh, zeroes in on what were common names, uh, Jesus or Yeshua, uh, Joseph, uh, uh, Ananias. I mean, in the New Testament, it seems like every other guy's named Ananias. And, uh, and Caiaphas, I, I don't know how common that was, but it, it just seems to me, what are the chances that uh, these, the, the ones that l would link Jesus with the priest Caiaphas are, are actually intended as such. I, I doubt it seriously, but still, uh, you know, this is a creative, ingenious hypothesis, and I'd like to see you uh, follow it up. And uh, uh, it'd be great uh, fun seeing you and uh, Derek talk about this. Uh, he's a very good interviewer, as you know, and, uh, and knows his stuff on this. So I hope you will follow up with that. Yeah, okay. Here's one from Art Cominio. I'm curious about the origin of the idea found in many religions that pain and suffering somehow appease a deity. Why do people think that fasting gains God's favor, let alone such a ridiculous thing as self-flagellation? How say you? Uh, well, um, apparently it's a version of sacrifice uh, that you're sacrificing your blood or your firstborn son or, or whatever uh, to God, and that's about the priciest sacrifice one can imagine. So if there's any chance of uh, uh, getting God to do what you want, uh, this ought to do it. And I, I gather it's the same sort of thing because, for instance, after the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, rabbis taught that uh, illness, plus other things too, like doing good to people, uh, they were um, means of atonement in lieu of the of uh, the absence of the temple and uh, and therefore of sacrifices, since uh, sacrifices there was no longer a, a temple and and that had to be the only place one offered sacrifices. Uh, and so they they had to figure, well, God must have provided something else. And so Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, starts from the, uh, the assumption that you can't offer an animal sacrifice at the temple since there ain't one, uh, and uh, that uh, you're, for you to bewail your sins is a way of uh, being absolved from them. And uh, suffering is another way that, that uh, you're... I, I think this is sort of crude, superstitious thinking, but it's very common. It's like, uh, is God just going to let me off the hook? Or, or don't I have to pay for it? Doesn't he have to sort of take it out of my hide in some sense? I think that's why they do it, that their blood and suffering will be... Uh, both a show of their willingness to uh, 
to do whatever they can to get on God's good side, and that it probably somehow has to do with blood sacrifice. Uh, that, that'd be my guess. But uh, basically, sacrifice was feeding the gods, and, uh, and um, therefore, uh, like that's very clear in the Rig Veda, for instance, uh, and you would sacrifice the biggest ticket item you could, which is why there were horse sacrifices. Uh, and uh, I, I think the same thing, it's, it's somewhat toned down, but the idea that fasting is, and uh, uh, flagellation and so on, ought to uh, bring God's mercy and forgiveness. Uh, as I say, I think it's kind of primitive, but might be. I mean, if it's serious enough, you I guess you'd feel like, well, I've paid for my sins. God must think so, too. And, uh, you know, this is a different way of looking at it than uh, we have uh, wound up doing in Western civilization. Okay. Joe Schmo here. I humbly, meekly ask that you use your Hebrew accent. In the epic movie The Life of Brian, Monty Python members pose some questions about Christianity and Judaism. Why was the mention of the name of God Jehovah uh, a taboo? Why were women not allowed at stoning to death as punishment? Why was the life story of, child, of uh, children born... What was the... What? What was the life story of children born next door to the Christ? You mean slaughter of Bethlehem? Uh, I guess there wasn't much of a life story left over for them. Uh, did liberation revolutionary groups exist and were they all talk and no action? Like in the life of Brian, you know, that, that is hilarious. The send up of, of leftist would-be revolutionary groups. Uh, and they're all the time just drafting resolutions and all that. Uh, but yeah, there there were these groups, not the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front and the Free Galilee Campaign and all of that stuff. But uh, still, yeah, there there were some that definitely got into it. The, the zealots, uh, properly so named, in... Uh, at the fall of Jerusalem and other, they uh, battled with rival groups, kind of like in, I'm sure that's where they got the idea in the life of Brian. Uh, and uh, there were other revolutionary movements, that of Judas of Galilee, which I think was really the seedbed from which uh, the zealots later arose. Uh, and there were the, the Sicarii, who apparently were part of the zealots. They were assassins, as the name suggests. Uh, and there had been, um, at the death of Herod the Great, various messianic uh, movements to uh, get uh, people like Athrongis, the shepherd king, and others to uh, to take the throne. And it never worked, and so on. Uh, and, and, of course, Judah Mac uh, Judas... No, what, what am I thinking? Uh... Simon Bar Kokhba, about a hundred years after Jesus would have lived. Uh, so yeah, and they they did do stuff. They were uh, they took out the sword, and Josephus was with them. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, let me see if I can answer some of these other ones. Why could you not say the name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh? Uh, well, that goes back to the. 
uh, commandment, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, what did that mean? What were they telling you not to do? Well, you'd have to ask yourself, taking the name of Yahweh. Now, that would seem to mean invoking his name. Well, how do we invoke the name Yahweh? Well, uh, legally. And uh, so uh, it was apparently understood to mean, uh, on the one hand, uh, making a contract you would swear to uh, have the job done at a certain amount of time, coming in under a cer certain price, and you would say, as Yahweh lives, I will fulfill the, the conditions of this. And uh, when Jacob says to Laban, may Yahweh watch between you and me now, as they had uh, taken a, an oath of agreement, and the watch between you and me is not just a pleasant wish for divine providence. Oh, God will be taking care of you. No, it's like, hey, don't think you're going to get away with anything after we part company, just because I won't be able to see you cheating, or vice versa. God will. Like uh, later on, uh, who was it? says, thou God seest me. And I can't get away with anything. Uh, the all-seeing eye of God will uh, will see what I did and make sure I get walloped for it. Uh, well, taking his name in vain would mean a breach of contract, whether you intend to do it or not. I mean, it might just be that you're negligent and you wind up not doing it. Hey, uh, look, you swore by the living God, Yahweh. Uh, you better make sure that doesn't happen. And then, of course, taking an oath to tell the truth in court. Right? Uh, we know that because um, we have a couple of scenes in the Old Testament where I think uh, Agag and uh, probably others are, are told by an interrogator, give glory to Yahweh. And uh, the answer is, as Yahweh lives, I didn't steal your ox goad, right? There's nothing truer than that Yahweh is the living God. And, and so I am saying what I'm about to say is just as true as that. Well, suppose you lie uh, and say that just to get away with it. Well, you might fool the, uh, the court, but you're not going to fool God. He's not going to hold you guiltless. So that seems to be what it originally meant. Don't falsely invoke the name of God legally. Right? Uh, but uh, people began to wonder... What, is that the only way to take it in vain? In other words, to use it improperly, to use it in an empty fashion? And so I think probably the, the third option that people came up with was magical use of the name, uh, which goes on way on into the Middle Ages, uh, where you invoke the various angels and God uh, and uh, to, to uh, bind the demon to do your will. Well, some... Holy folks thought, thought that was all right. Others thought, no, no, no. Uh, 
And Jesus gets in trouble for that, right? He casts out demons by Beelzebub. Well, I think originally that was the point, uh, that, that they understood that that is what he was doing, that he had bound uh, the, the prince of demons and was forcing him to cough up his victims. Uh, but some people, and how would you do that? Well, it doesn't say anymore, but I'm guessing originally it would have been done by the mighty name of Jehovah. Uh, just like you see in The Exorcist, right? What does Max von Sydow say, Father Marin? The power of Christ compels you. Uh, yeah, you got to bring in the big name. Uh, or the seven sons of Siva in Acts are trying to exorcise the demon, right? In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of him. It doesn't work too well then. Um well, uh, but that's, so they said, don't use it in magic. And again, you don't tell people not to do what they're already not doing. So you can be pretty clear that, uh, you know, that was, that was going on and probably continued to go on. And, uh, oh, let's see. Um, so eventually uh, the scribes, later the rabbis, their, their strategy was to build a fence around the Torah, as they said, or a hedge, if you prefer that translation. The idea is we want to put up barriers around the written commandments of the Torah so that you won't get close enough to break the commandments. You're not going to get as, as close as breaking distance. Well, what would that mean? Well, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, don't look on another guy's wife with lust, even if you don't bring it to fruition. Uh, well, because that way you'll make darn sure you don't ever bring it to fruition. You've heard it was said, uh, don't kill somebody, don't murder somebody, but I'm telling you not to nurse anger against them. Uh, well, that's hardly as some people uh, unjustly ridicule this. Uh, what you're saying that getting mad at somebody is is just as bad as murdering them? Well, then what the heck? You know, in for a penny, in for a pound. You might as well go ahead and kill them. No, no, that's certainly not the point. The point is, if you make clear, if you make sure you don't let your anger. Uh, flare up, then th there's no way you're going to wind up murdering somebody. So there were these ad, or like uh, in the Baptist church I attended as a kid, they wouldn't let us go see any movies, even The Sound of Music, which was playing for over a year at a local theater. Don't go see that flick. Uh, they uh, wouldn't let you go see The Hiding Place, the story of Corey Ten Boom, uh, who was a great, great lady. I had the privilege of hearing her speak in person once. Uh, she uh, She's Dutch. She was a Dutch Reformed Christian. And during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, uh, she hid Jews in her attic and basement and so on until she was finally discovered and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp along with them. Uh, well, um, Billy Graham had this film made, and the church told us, eh, don't go see it. Why the heck not? Because they, they wanted to build a hedge around the Torah. And they said, well, yeah, obviously going to see this is not going to harm you, but 
uh, there's a crack in the wall there. You might start thinking, well, there's really plenty of other movies that couldn't hurt me either. And before long, you'll be lining up at the porno theater. Uh, and that shows a remarkable lack of uh, faith in the uh, maturity of the church members, right? But that was the logic. Yeah, of course it's extreme. But it's it's extremely important not to break the laws of God. So let's have these preliminary laws. Uh, and, and that's the idea of not taking the name in vain as not using it at all. That way you're going to make plenty sure you never use it wrong. Uh, and that led to uh, a great, you know, where, where the Lord's Prayer says, uh, Father, hallowed be thy name. Yeah, keeping it sanctified, treating it with reverence. Uh, and so that's what they're doing. And that's why uh, whenever even they had a liturgical reading in the synagogue of passages that referred to Yahweh, or the, the Tetragrammaton, the four letters making up the name in Hebrew, uh, they were, there'd be a little mark in the text reminding you, don't say it. Say Adonai instead, which means Lord, but it didn't have the holiness uh, of the divine name. Uh, and uh, that's why even now uh, some Jews will not even use the word God uh, if they're writing it, typing it, writing it on the blackboard with chalk, they will have G-D uh, because it's going to be erased. You don't want to erase the name of God, etc. Extreme? Yeah, don't think they don't know it, but it's extreme reverence and, uh, you know, you can't have too much reverence. Uh, and uh, so that's the, the reason that you, you shouldn't use it. So when... when uh, Deuteronomy of Gath says, uh, but all I said was, uh, this halibut is good enough for Jehovah. Uh, he shouldn't have said that, right? Uh, why were women not allowed at stonings? Uh, I don't think the Bible says that, uh, so that would be, if I'm right, uh, could be wrong, uh, that would be another rabbinic uh, alteration in the thing. I, I'm not sure why, uh, because uh, I, I know in general they felt like that uh, women need not be responsible for the niceties of the Torah. Uh, they basically were kept to be ch as, as children in this regard, uh, which has a lot to do with the uh, subsidiary status of women throughout the West until recently. Um, what was the life story of children born next door to the Christ? Like, you mean like other contemporaries of Jesus or those born the same day? Uh, well, it would have to be, I guess, the former because it says that uh, Herod uh, the Great told his, um, his soldiers to kill any infant boy um, who was two years old or, well, not infant, every young boy who was from an infant up to two years. Uh, so I guess uh, not much for them. You know, I wrote a, a gospel once for the Unification Church, and in my version of, of the Nativity, the angel tells Joseph, and Joseph makes the rounds of the small village of Bethlehem and says to all the parents, get your kid out of here now. Uh, and uh, rather than, but, but of course, the, the 
writer of Matthew didn't think of it that way. He's only concerned about Jesus. So the other kids got frog gigged. Uh, well, he, he's not thinking about that. It's not that he didn't care. He, he wasn't really narrating events, right? It's just kind of a fairy tale. Uh, okay. Uh, well, those are all good questions that are posed on the life of Brian, uh, Joe says. The, the movie ends with a huge crucifixion scene with the martyrs, quote-unquote, singing a happy song, Always look on the bright side of life. One of the martyrs on the cross exclaims, I can see my house from here. No women were hurt by crucifixion, unlike the Indian tribes of America. Uh, that would crucify women tied to a tree and pierced by arrows. The Field Museum in Chicago has, or at least had, a diorama depicting the scene. Quite a shock to a nine-year-old seeing a woman tied to a tree to be crucified at dawn. Also, there was a, uh, a hall of Buddhism with a 50-foot mural of torture and punishments awaiting sinners. This mural was removed when the museum went to a child-friendly motif. What a shame. Um, yeah, I had a, um, a really fascinating article by uh, um, Josephine Massingbird Ford, a uh, Roman Catholic, a very innovative um, eagle-eyed Roman Catholic uh, New Testament scholar. Uh, and in it, it was about crucifixion stories of women in antiquity. So there were some, but I, I think you're correct that generally speaking, you wouldn't have a, a woman crucified for what a man might be crucified for. I think that's right. Uh, as for the, the post-mortem torments of the damned in Buddhism, I uh, did a talk that's still on YouTube somewhere called Disco Inferno, which uh, in which I talked about different theories of hell and how it evolved, and and I uh, listed off the over a hundred distinct hells uh, conjured up by uh, sadistic Buddhist monks. Uh, you thought Dante's Inferno was bad. This is unbelievable. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, so yeah, they, they did have a pretty frightening imagination where that stuff came from. Okay, uh, then uh, Joe says, I want to discuss two Monty Python questions, but first a question of my own. Is there any knowledge or writing or commentary exclaiming that the Christian religion was a death cult? I must, it must have crossed some scholarly minds. It crossed my mind at the age of 12, and I'm no scholar. I grew up in a non-believing Catholic family. We attended church, did the sacraments, and we never discussed the religion. We knew it was an elaborate story legend designed to keep the public in line. Fire and brimstone await you, sinners. Uh, by the way, my second favorite evangelistic tract, right up there next to uh, The Whipping, uh, was the classic Christ Rejector, You Are Going to Hell. And then it says, And hell is hot. And then it goes on to the, all the horrors. It's great stuff. Anyway, um, uh, let's see. Will hundreds of years 
Hundreds of years from now, will scholars talk about the Christian death cult that worshipped a crucifixion instrument of death and the dead man on a stick? Uh, at Easter in my Catholic church, the Christ on the cross was taken down and put in the aisle where the congregation would cue to bend down and kiss the bloody feet of Jesus. Weird stuff, let me tell you. I've not gotten over that barbaric action in over half a century. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, this, I believe, was never published, but uh, Stefan Huller, not the one spelled H-O-E-L-L-E-R, who started, who's a Jungian scholar and began his own Gnostic church in California, a really erudite and fascinating writer, I wrote uh, Jung and the Gnostic Gospels and stuff like that. Uh, not him, though whatever he writes is certainly worth reading by far. But Stefan Huller, H-U-L-L-E-R, who has all kinds of fascinating theories. He did a manuscript, can't think of the name of it now, but he, he does think that early Christians were all would-be martyrs, that they sought out execution because that was the way to get to heaven. I have found it ultimately unpersuasive, but it's uh, it's fascinating as everything he writes is. I'll see if I can put the bug in his ear to maybe try to publish it. Uh, it's fascinating stuff, but uh, uh, let's see. I, I see there's uh, that's what I'm talking about. okay uh, in, back to the idea of not naming God not uh, saying the divine name uh, the the real reason for that Joe suggests is the fact that the Hebrews are still angry at God for having abandoned them in my mind, the Hebrews were hurting because God left them, slowly drifted away in space to take uh, its present position in the solar system, now known as the planet Saturn. In the book Mythology of the Hebrews and its Historical Development by Ignaz Goldseer, a great book, definitely, uh, the author explains that the original gods of the Hebrews were planets uh, when they were close to the Earth. Astronomy, um, astronomy supports the movements of planets wandering throughout the solar system, so it is possible that Earth was close to Saturn, received its warmth, and was part of a solar system composed of Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, and the comet Venus. This sounds kind of like Velikovsky to me. Uh, these are the original gods of the planet Earth. That Earth was electrically captured by Sol, the sun, and ripped away. This is the base story of the myths and legends. Well, I'm going to drop this topic here because it is too long a subject for this email and get back to the biblical scholars and Monty Python. If the Saturn god drifted away with the consequence that Eden went away, the wonderful temperate climate changed, and now life 
was universally scratching the land for some grains of low nutritive value, intense heat, labor, and pain of birth, conquests by the barbarians. Uh, the, uh, the Hebrews held a grudge against Ale or Jehovah, also known as Kronos to the Greeks and Odin to the Norse people. This grudge against God over time lost its original meaning and was changed to having a total respect of the deity. Hebrews don't mention his name out of respect. It makes sense to me and explains the prodigal son story. The prodigal son is El or Saturn, and his return is joyous no matter what he did during his absence. Uh, disclaimer, I am not a biblical scholar. None of what I write has any authority in a scholarly sense. But religion is the most interesting topic. Without it, we would be much poorer. I agree. Yeah, I, uh, we're, we're told that they uh, did worship Saturn at one point uh, when... Uh, Oh boy, was it in Joel or Amos? I think you know who were you worshiping all those years in the uh, in the wilderness, uh, Kaiwan, which was Saturn, I think, and uh, so on, some star god and all that, uh, and uh, Saturday, Saturn's day. I think it was even that in uh, among the ancient Israelites. Um, oh, okay, back to the uh, women not allowed to participate Joe in a stoning. Joe has a theory about that. Uh, this one is a real stumper, but a clue is given in the movie. The women enjoyed the act of stoning just too much. When Brian's mum is told the stoney was a local boy, she says, Oh, good! The stoner women go through the expense of buying beards, haggling for them, and can't wait for the stoning to start. They loved it. The stoning scene is a real memorable scene, thanks to Monty Python's ability for tasteful satirical filmmaking. I owe them a debt of gratitude. Oh, don't we all, Joe, I'm telling you. That that movie is so great. Holmes for next lepa. Uh, okay... Uh, so, thank you, Joe. He sent that in May 22nd. That's not as far in the past as some of the questions. I delayed forever. Uh, this is from Matthew. Uh, I think I've heard you mention the theory that the Gospel of John is out of order. Someone dropped the codex and put the pages back together out of order. Uh, it was a hypothesis for why Jesus left the town of the narrative and then later arrives there. I believe you once listed a proposed order uh, of the verses. Could you pass along or read out the listeners uh, what, uh, which books of yours discuss or contain this? Uh, yeah, the only one in which I deal with it uh, at all is the pre-Nicene New Testament. Uh, where I, I explain pretty much what you just said and, and mentioned that there are at least three proposed reconstructions of it, and I mentioned the one I have chosen to use. And so uh, that would that is a way of envisioning the possibility. Uh, and so the pre-Nicene New Testament, that's, that's the one you want. Uh, let's see. Hope you like it. 
um, Brent in Tennessee says, I was listening to an episode of Matt Dillahunty's Atheist Experience from 2018. Seth Andrews was a guest host. Seth said there were multiple authors of Mark. I've not heard that before. Do you agree? Um, well, I don't know what he meant. Uh, you can say that our present text uh, contains the work of at least two authors. If uh, That's a little misleading because... Uh, most scholars would say that the same that one single author wrote the Gospel of Mark all the way up to verse eight of chapter sixteen. Uh, they fled uh, and told no one anything, for they were afraid. Uh, well, a lot of ancient scribes thought, "Wait a minute, this, this can't be the end," uh, and so they they thought that uh, something must have been there. Uh, let's let's try to you know figure out what uh, it might have been, and so you have. Uh, three different endings to it in the manuscripts. I mean, some of them, the earliest ones, end right there, for they were afraid. Epobunto gar. Um, uh, but uh, somebody wrote the uh, the so-called longer ending, right? And uh, that's the one with a snake handling and such. Uh, in case anybody's um, forgotten it, let's give it a quick uh, read. Uh, Mark 16, yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, okay, uh, as of verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared in another form uh, to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they sat at table and he upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of hearts, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues. Uh, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and just, I'm sorry, and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that attended it. Amen. Well, there is uh, what is called the freer logion, or logion, I guess, um, because it's part of uh, the guy that discovered it was named Freer. Uh, and um, in it, it's this, what I just read, but there's a little more of a, of a dialogue. 
uh, let's see. He appeared and upbraided them because they hadn't believed uh, those who uh, saw him after he had risen. Uh, the other Logion says something like, but they replied, uh, uh, the something like the the power of Satan rules this age and makes it difficult to, to understand the truth, something like that. Uh, but um, reveal thy righteousness now. Uh, and Jesus says, uh, there are many terrible things in store uh, for you, but go preach the gospel, etc. So it's a slightly longer version. So at least one manuscript had that, and of course it's like cockroaches. If you see one, there must have been other manuscripts that had it. But then some uh, copies have this following verse 8. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Uh, well, uh, that would be that would give us three additional authors to mark, if you want to put it that way. Uh, people that had just added little cabooses onto the end. Uh, now, what to do with the secret gospel of Mark that um, Morton Smith either discovered or fabricated? It's still a raging debate. Uh, if Smith wrote it, then he might be another author of the gospel of Mark. Or, if it was really part of an ancient version of the Gospel of Mark used by the Carpocratians in Egypt, uh, that might mean they were, uh, somebody there was an additional author. It's difficult to say, and so I'm not sure what Seth meant, uh, not having heard it, but generally speaking, I mean, some people think there are little bitty interpolations here and there, um, but it's not like there was a committee. At least most people don't think so. I, I don't see any reason to think that. Um, so, um, now I think we're closer to that with Matthew, uh, where I, I believe you, you have material stemming from different factions in the church at Antioch, where I think it was probably written, uh, and that um, there are different layers of it that people kept adding to it. So that is, is really a mixed bag. Uh, but I'd like to hear what Seth has to say about it, though I'll probably never have the chance. Okay, one more. Uh, Alejandro Diaz says, uh, Why is the Virgin Mary so important in the Catholic Church? Well, there's a couple of uh, answers to that that kind of blend into each other. Uh, many have uh, thought that she is a Christianized version of the goddess Isis and various other equivalent gods in the ancient world. In fact, there's a famous statue of Mother Isis suckling the infant Horus, who is the resurrection and reincarnation of Osiris. 
uh, and you wouldn't know, I mean, uh, unless there was some inscription or I guess it was found amidst ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian artifacts uh, that made clear who was supposed to be who, you would swear it was Mary and the infant Jesus. It's the same thing, but it wouldn't have to be. I, I mean, it, it could be the same kind of instinct that pops up in all religions, how the mother of the, the savior is venerated like uh, Mara, the uh, mother of uh, Siddhartha, and so on. Uh, who knows? But uh, um, it, it could be that she was, because uh, various saints apparently were um, retoolings of pagan gods and so on. Uh, as Christianity spread into new territories and pagans were converted, they figured it would be a little easier for them to adapt if they kind of baptized their gods under Christian names. Uh, the, perhaps the, the greatest and most outrageous example of that is Saint Ayadasaf, who was originally the Bodhisattva, uh, uh, the uh, Prince Siddhartha. <laughs> But uh, the voodoo deities, the Loa, uh, they are um, Catholic saints made, uh, I'm sorry, they are, are Obia uh, gods and goddesses made over into Catholic saints. It was a way of converting to Catholicism, but, uh, but keeping the old faith, just merging them. So that might have happened, but whether that was the, the process or not, as Carl Jung said, the Virgin Mary is practically the fourth person of the Trinity. Uh, it's, it's, he says that four is the archetypal number of stability and uh, that uh, the Trinity is missing somebody officially, but she's there nonetheless. It's God the Father, God the Mother, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Of course, there were ancient Jewish Christians that figured the Holy Spirit was the mother of Jesus. Uh, so I guess they didn't uh, go that way. But the Virgin Mary becomes virtually a goddess uh, in, as you press on into the Middle Ages, where she starts getting called the co-redemptrix, the co-creatrix. Uh, the mother of God really was supposed to be just a comment on the fact that Jesus, the infant human, was already at the, uh, in possession of a divine nature. So it was just a striking way of saying that. But of course, you know, the religious imagination goes wild. And when people said mother of God, they probably couldn't th help but think of Hera or something. Um, but uh, why, again, uh, there's another part of the answer. Why'd this happen? Well, it's a pattern in religions that the originally God, the God originally near at hand and approachable in prayer and so on is so exalted in the theology of the religion, uh, elevated so highly in abstract philosophical terms and pictured with such transcendent majesty that one can no longer easily imagine him uh, having uh, friendly relations with mere humans. So we need a mediator. 
Well, in the Greek religion, Zeus became philosophized uh, as the, the stoic logos, the divine uh, substance of all things. Well, they, then they needed somebody more immediately available, and so uh, Asclepius and Apollo and Hermes and others became... Uh, um, there were gods, but they uh, they were more approachable. You could pray to them. You you wouldn't presume to bother Zeus. Uh, let's see. Uh, then, oh, and the same thing happened uh, in in some West African religions. They figured the sky god had created everything, but he got disgusted with humans after a while and left. Uh, and uh, and and so the subordinate gods took on the business he had originally transacted with humans. They would answer prayers and stuff. Uh, and it's uh, it's the same thing uh, all over. Not that it has to happen, but it it does happen more than once. And the Virgin Mary, well, Jesus, of course, became you know. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. It says in one of the pastorals. Uh, and so that's Jesus. You need a mediator because God is high and lifted up and far off and so forth. But then they began to glorify Jesus with his throne at the right hand of God. And uh, he's the cosmocrator, the ruler of the universe. And so he gets to be too exalted to bother with the likes of us. And so they, uh, they kind of exalted the Virgin Mary as someone who is practically a goddess, but still technically human. And uh, you might say she's a demigoddess. And uh, so she's, and they figured, well, she's a figure of motherly compassion and all of that, so we can pray to her. And which brings up my uh, one of my favorite theological jokes that I've uh, burdened uh, my listeners with too many times, but it's just so great I can't resist it. This little old wizened uh, Roman Catholic lady goes into the uh, the church late one night, and uh, she starts saying a prayer to the Virgin Mary. Hail Mary, hail Mary, full of grace, etc. And uh, and suddenly the ceiling vanishes and heaven opens up and there is Jesus sitting on the throne and he says, my daughter, your prayer has been heard. What would you have of me? And what does she say? Hey, shut up, I'm talking to your mother. Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's what happens. And I, I think that's why she became so important. Uh, and I, I defy anybody to, to show how she is not treated as a goddess. I mean, they'll draw these uh, these phony distinctions. Oh, we don't worship uh, Mary. Uh, we just pray to her. And so, come on. Um, so uh, anyway, I think that's what happened. Well, folks, believe it or not, the rain barrel is empty. I've gone through all the questions and will need some more. So I, I know there's other stuff you, you want to know about the Bible, or at least you maybe do know and are just entertained by my ridiculous speculations. But for whatever reason, feel free to send in some questions so we can have another Bible geek soon. In the meantime, why don't you buy a copy of my essay collection, Reinterpreting the New Testament, be on the lookout for uh, the soon-to-be-published um, books of, of mine, Judaizing Jesus, 
merely Christianity and um, when Gospels collide. Uh, oh boy, what fun they're going to be. Plus, uh, pretty soon now, um, a book that I co-edited with uh, John Loftus will be out. That is uh, Varieties of Jesus Mythicism. I got a an introduction to that in a couple of essays. I'm sort of hogging the thing, but there, there are all manner of mythicist viewpoints represented there, each uh, writer making a case for a different version. Uh, it's going to be a great and irreplaceable work. So I'll uh, see you on uh, the Human Bible and another one of these Bible geeks uh, sometime soon. Thanks for being with me, and happy Fourth of July. And of course, happy 7th of July. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 